Hello, everyone. Today is June the 2nd, 2022, as I record this introduction. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. My goal for this podcast is to connect you to ideas, insights, research, and each other on the topics of education, parenting, and healthy child-parent relationships. For those returning, I want to take a minute to thank you for being here, for sharing my podcast on your social media pages, and for the messages you have sent me. Your feedback is really helpful, and also, it's just, you're so kind. I know the internet can be a crazy place at times, but thoughtfulness does prevail, so thank you for being people who seek to tip the scales towards goodness. It really does matter. Okay, so on to the introduction. I am grateful for this conversation for two reasons. One, it is filled with wonderful insights about children's memory and practical applications that you can implement today. And two, it is a reunion. Dr. Baker Ward isn't just any psychology professor. She was one of my psychology professors at NC State in the early 90s. I credit her with positively impacting my life and being instrumental in my growth and self-discovery. I learned a great deal from her as a student and as one of her research assistants on the Children's Memory Study, a study that we talk about in this episode. It was her recommendation that led me to apply for a position on the landmark MTA study at Duke Medical Center with the late Dr. Keith Connors, a position that continued to advance my understanding of psychiatry, psychology, and the impact of early events on child development. In this episode, we talk about active learning, how we become responsible for our own learning, how we can support our children's reporting of events, ways to approach our children when we are seeking to understand, and the variation in recall based on a child's age, and so much more. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Lynn Baker-Ward. Hello, Dr. Baker-Ward. Good morning. Thank you for coming onto my podcast. We have so much to talk about. And um, (laughs) so, you know, the floor is yours to talk about children's memory, maybe even how you got into the field of psychology and especially the work that you've been doing over the years and the research in children's memory. So please take it away. Okay, Missy. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And it's just a great joy to reconnect with a former student. That's truly one of my uh, my major joys in life. So thank you for getting in touch and for inviting me to join you today. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned my name. I'm Lynn Baker Ward. Uh, I'm a professor of psychology at NC State University. Go Wolfpack. <laughs> uh, my specialty is in developmental psychology. Uh, and if we're defining that officially, it's origins, maintenance, and change in behavior and cognition. So where our skills and knowledge and concepts come from, how we hang on to them over time, how they may change across the lifespan is the discipline of developmental psychology. And of course, that work is interesting, uh, I think, to me, because it is uh, a science in many ways, but it's also, I think, important in the world. Mm -hmm. And we can just look around and see the importance of all of that. Let's see, you ask uh, for, I guess, my origin maintenance and change story. Um, So uh, I'm I'm one of those people who um, looks like they had a really straightforward course in their development as a professional. And I think that can be um, a little distressing sometimes to students who wonder if they're uh, normal, quote unquote, in thinking a lot about different courses of action. And of course, they should think about the best fit for them and explore different possible selves and different possibilities. Uh, and I think uh, 
I, uh, I did that but I always wanted to go into psychology sort of as soon as I knew what it was. Uh, and that happened for me uh, fairly early. Uh, I was really um, recruited by a middle school teacher of mine who I adored to help out in the summer in a rural, as a volunteer in a rural Head Start program. I grew up in, in Madison County, uh, North Carolina, in the beautiful mountains in a a rural community. Uh, and as a volunteer, I brought in some music to the program and helped with some of the kids. And I was very interested in that, but I got very interested in the question of how early experiences may set the course for later development or may determine aspects of, of early development. Mm -hmm. And that led me uh, to pursue psychology when I knew what it was. Um, and I uh, studied at Wake Forest University uh, with a wonderful professor, Frank Wood, who was really interested in sort of neurological underpinnings of memory and cognition. And that sort of solidified my interest in psychology. Uh, I did my doctorate at UNC. Uh, so I'm one of those people having been at Wake Forest, UNC and State, whose team almost never loses. That's <laughs> and, right. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got almost all of it coming. Uh, so, and I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be at State for the past 37 years, believe it or not. Gosh, wow. That's amazing. It is. I can't believe it. You know, when you were talking about your origin story, and, I, and you know this story about, about um, my entrance into State and how I started out in business and accounting and then took my first psychology course and said, I am so in the wrong place <laughs> and I need to switch to psycho psychology immediately. So the intro to psychology, that was where all of the years of, for me, researching, not really researching people, but observing, I was uh -huh. very observant of how certain things were okay in certain environments, but then also the inconsistencies of behavior across environments. I was very aware yes. of those sorts of things. Uh -huh. And I had friends who would come to me to talk and ask questions about, you know, relationship stuff. And it kind of, and I would just get really deep into things to the point where some people were like, you're just too deep, you know, like, ah, you're too, you're too intense sometimes. But it was because I was so curious about the root cause for things. Um, so anyway, I, I, I find it took me until college to, to say, you know, this is exactly where I needed to be. It was almost like I was overthinking yeah. the decision to go into something related to business and finance because it seemed more, I don't know, maybe it had like a, a, a more thrilling idea attached to it. Yeah. Um, but, but then once I got into the psychology world at data, I knew that that was where I was supposed to be and it just felt right. And you are a huge part of that. <laughs> well, that's a lovely thing for, for you to say, thank you. And yeah, sure. I don't want to apply that I was an 11 year old who knew I wanted to be a psychologist. <laughs> it's only kind of in retrospect that you look back and go, Oh, that was an important influence. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's important, I think, for people to remember that now as they're raising children to pay attention to the things that do light them up yes. and to just kind of make a mental note about it. Not that they necessarily need to jump onto it and then like push them in a certain direction, but just be aware. Right. I think those are really, really important things to encourage our children to think about uh, what are really your passions? What do you choose to do? And it may be that there's a career that can build on that directly uh, for some people it's a career that offers part of that and maybe our volunteer community experiences or other uh, contexts can provide some greater uh, satisfaction of those particular goals. But it's, uh, 
it's very important. We hear a lot of people say right now that our children need their people and their passions, especially when they go to college and become young adults. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, that's a wonderful thing to think about uh, pursuing. Who, Who are your people and what are your passions? Right, right. And it's the idea of a community of support because we mm-hmm. have the beauty, the benefit of being so worldwide. And sometimes as wonderful as that is, it also can be isolating as strange as it is, as it is because you have so many people to choose from, so many places to go to get information, yet the physical community may be almost smaller because you're interacting more with the virtual world. Yes. I have found that that's, that is a consistent need across human development is that we need those physical relationships um, mm-hmm. and have people around us that we know have our best interests at heart, no matter what. Absolutely. As far as the research that you have been doing at NC State, did you start out in the children's memory study world or was that something that you created and or, or developed over time? I uh, started studying children's memory really in graduate school and uh, did my dissertation research long ago on how it is that children learn to um, guide their own memorization processes. And of course, that's, I think, an important area because uh, it's related to the bigger issue of how we become active learners, how we learn to take responsibility for our own, our own learning. Uh, and I was particularly interested in uh, a strategy of rehearsal. So when we may learn information by repeating it, by being exposed to it, by saying it over and over. And um, I uh, was, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in uh, kindergarten classrooms, really looking at uh, maybe characteristics of children who develop those skills at one point in time and those who got them a little later uh, and how that might be related to other skills in learning. So. Uh, that was the early research that I that I did. Uh, when I got to NC State, I continued to do some of that research, but uh, it was a time uh, when there was a lot of concern about um, child sexual abuse in child care centers mm. and how to understand what their young children might be saying. Uh, and I got very interested in in that line of research. So questions about when our memory for the things that happened to us really begins, how accurate our memory uh, might be for things we may not understand very well, and how we can, as adults who work with children, come up with the best ways of, of interviewing children, of, of supporting their reports, evaluating their reports, minimizing the likelihood that they'll be uh, fed information that may not be true or may not be the right interpretation. And uh, that work uh, has really been a passion for me uh, in many ways. And I've continued that work, but focusing mainly on the kinds of ways we represent our experiences to ourselves, how that affects our understanding of ourselves, our identities, uh, and how it may even affect our mental wellness, our mental health and wellness Mm -hmm. outcomes. So different research programs, but all on that same overriding theme. Okay. Well, and it's all so fascinating and it's absolutely important, I think, for us to understand that more on a basic level, but also on that societal level, because the more we can become aware of kind of our operating system, I think the more Mm -hmm. compassionate people can become about it, maybe more patient, um, and especially with our children, because 
as parents know, when we are raising children, they change so rapidly. You know, we think we understand parenting or we think we have it down. We finally understand our kids at a certain age and then they change again (laughs) and then they change again. And so it's a consistent evolution. It's normal for children to go through these changes from, from age to age. Sure. Absolutely. So as far as children's memory goes, what have you seen in your research about memory and ability to recall events with the different ages? Because I think the young, is the youngest that you have in your studies three? Is that correct? Usually about three is the youngest that we have. Um, And uh, it's a pretty humbling experience to realize that you're asking a three-year-old who may still be in diapers at times talking about something that happened to them two months ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are pretty short reports. Yes, um, I can imagine. Yeah. Right. We do find that when children as young as three or four really understand an event, uh, then when they're questioned in And question sounds almost adversarial when they're given some structure and guidance and support in talking about that event, that uh, children as young as three or four can certainly provide information about something that may have happened a long time ago, but it's often fragmented, not a lot of detail, not a lot of emotion Mm -hmm. um, accompanying that typically. Uh, And uh, these are things that may be hard to understand if we don't know what the child was talking about. Okay. Uh, So the earliest reports for uh, memories are uh, as early as infancy, depending on the kind of memories that we're talking about. So an infant who um, is presented, let's imagine an infant in a crib with a mobile over their uh, crib, and the infant learns over time that uh, in one session that if they kick the crib, the mobile over the crib will start bouncing and dancing. We've mm-hmm. all seen that, I think, who those of us are caring for children. And it's really fun to watch a child make that discovery. But the point about memory is that days later, we can take the child to the same situation where they see the, crib, the mobile over the crib again, and the child just almost immediately starts kicking mm-hmm. and punching like a fighter <laughs> as they're making that, that mobile dance. So uh, I would call that a kind of memory. Uh, but it's very much a cued kind of memory. It certainly isn't the verbal kind of memory that we're interested in when we think about children telling us about events. Um, one interesting thing about that very early memory, and again, not verbal, not deliberate, hard to share, but is that children actually learn to recognize their mother's voices when they're in utero. Mm. Uh, a newborn baby can differentiate the voice of their mother from the voice of another woman, uh, which is pretty amazing. And I want to be real careful in reporting those fascinating results because we are just talking about recognizing that maternal voice. Uh, That's not to say that a child who is, for example, or adopted early in life won't have a strong attachment to the adopted mother. It's not a necessary component for the child to develop a secure attachment later on. But that kind of recognition of the familiar begins around seven months in utero. Uh, okay. So pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, so event memory, memory for the experiences that we've had, memory for events that can be shared. We'll get a little of that in the twos, more in the threes, more in the fours, 
but uh, not organized or not deliberate or not taking the perspective of the other person in that, oh, you don't know this person I'm talking about. I remember one of my kids at age four was talking to a preschool teacher about what he'd done over the weekend. And he said, my aunt Melinda. And I thought that was so interesting because he had just hit a point that he realized that he needed to give his preschool teacher some context about who a right. person was, that she wouldn't know something he mm -hmm. knew. Uh, but that was sort of the first kinds of beginnings of seeing that, taking the perspective of another person, thinking about what another person knows or doesn't know, uh, really sharing an experience. And we look at three dimensions of events, really, as they are forming our uh, episodes of our lives and we can begin to share them with others. Um, one of them is the chronology. Do we put things in a logical sequence? Uh, and that develops over time into the early elementary school years. Uh, one of them is the context of that event. Where were you? Who else was there? What was going on? Uh, and uh, that's uh, fairly early in development as well. One thing that continues actually into midlife uh, is theme. So how our important experiences relate to each other, how they help us understand who we are, uh, how they're all connected. Uh, we talked earlier about looking back on our professional developments, our strong avocational interest, and really asking ourselves how did that come to be that way? Uh, I tell the undergraduates in my lab who've done some great work in coding narratives that when they're writing their graduate school essays, uh, they're really thinking about bringing in that theme. So that's some of the work on memory for events that we've done. Um, I guess another kind of event of memory that we've examined is um, memory is children's ability to enhance their own memory by using different strategies or different techniques, which we've talked about a bit earlier. Uh, and children as young as about five will do some of that, but it's a long-term process into the middle school years to really learn to effectively use your memory. Uh, and uh, just as an example, many children in late elementary school may not yet have understood, unless they've been taught to do so, that the items that they may miss on a test are the items they should go back and study. Uh, the child will study everything again from the top rather than focusing, for example, on the material they may have missed. And uh, you could see how that could lead to some really difficult uh, situations with parents. A child may not be doing well. The parent encourages the child to study more. The child doesn't know how to study effectively. So the child is not succeeding, even though they appear to be working mm -hmm. very hard. So understanding how our own memory works kind of is a separate question, but I think a, a very important one linked to memory. You know, you get, you get professors on, on Missy and they talk a lot because we're so used to people having to listen to us. Uh, <laughs> it's time for you to I ask me it, some questions. <laughs> I know what a lecture here. This is a conversation. It's so fascinating to me, though. I could I, I could come back to your lectures and just sit and listen for hours. So, um, but I, I do have a question about the the, the memory side of um, the strategic memory. So, when you're saying that it would help for kids to get some instruction, so what would be some direct instruction that you could offer children to help them with their memories? 
yeah. for specific information or even events. Okay, I think that's great. Um, and we've had a, a clinic at state, a summer program for children entering middle school that really focuses on study skills development. So I'm going to borrow a lot of my colleagues' uh, techniques in talking about that. One is just simply modeling. It's a parent who's willing to say, oh, I don't want to forget to take this letter to the mailbox tomorrow morning, so I'm putting it right by the door where I'll see it as they go out. So when, when we share our tricks and our memory failures uh, with, with our children to let them know some techniques that we may be using, that can be very helpful. Okay. Uh, so one thing is, is, as is so often the case in interacting with our children, is modeling, but in a very explicit way. Um, you know, I couldn't think of the last name of uh, this person until I remembered that it was a color, and then I realized it was green. So how is it that we search our memories? How is it that we plan to remember things effectively? Uh, I think that's certainly one very important step. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about organizing things, putting things that go together, uh, and certainly making connections because when we have ideas or concepts that are connected in our heads, remembering one related concept may remember another related concept. So for the older child, a middle school student or even a college student, uh, not just passively looking at the material, but really working with it becomes so important. So um, sometimes if I have students who aren't real happy about how they're doing uh, in a course and are concerned about how they're doing, I'll get the permission to go through some notes with them that they may mm -hmm. have made. And you'll find that really good students often connect or successful students really often connect things. So um, I remember one notebook from a student who had a very wide margin on the right, like a legal yeah. rule. And uh, the student would ask questions like, how is this different from this in the notes about con concepts? And then would write in, oh, it's about this. So they were linking things together in ways that would make them highly memorable. Um, it's sometimes the case that even a college student will come in and say, you know, I went through my notes and I highlighted them three different times, but I still didn't remember them on the, on the test. So that's not a, a very good way to retain information, mm -hmm. just to be passive. I appreciate the effort, but the student who's really making comparisons and um, different um, linkages is likely to retain information at a much deeper, richer, yeah. successful level. Uh, so how does memory work? Uh, how does it relate to things we already know? I observed a second grade class not long ago and the teacher began with a web. They're starting a new unit. And part of the question was, uh, what do we already know about this? So they're putting things together in ways that can be, can be very adaptive. Mm -hmm. um, part of the idea, I think, too, involves uh, meta-memory, which is our understanding about memory and about how it works. That's not automatic and it develops slowly over time during the elementary school and even into the later years. So uh, helping a child understand that making those connections may be important or uh, the way we study for a spelling test uh, might be different from the way that we study for a math test when we really learn need to know procedures as opposed to know something exactly as it appears by rote. Uh, so that meta-memory important uh, is another, another concept. 
Um, I would definitely uh, encourage uh, parents to play some memory games with their children. As I mentioned, to share their own memory successes and memory failures uh, to help the child not make the sense that maybe they're not bright enough or maybe not even that they didn't work hard enough, but that their effort wasn't what it could have been. And that means working smart as well as working a lot. Um, so uh, pointing out the successes that children may have, the uh, areas in which they may remember a tremendous amount of information because they're so uh, interested can avoid the trap of children thinking that I'm just not good enough. Uh, we want to instead encourage them to think maybe mm -hmm. you worked hard, but you may not have worked in the most effective way. Let's look at the task and think about how we might approach this in a really useful way. So um, in helping children succeed in school, I think one of the, the really big messages is to really reinforce the, um, the importance of effort, uh, but also for parents to take the next step that's really important and to look at effort, not just as time on task, but as really how effective the techniques that they're using are and may be. Um, what I mentioned about not always going back to study what you missed or studying the most uh, important information for a test is a skill that many middle schoolers don't yet have. So you can imagine a kind of a sad situation where a child's really trying hard, but the parent is increasingly frustrated because they don't see the progress. So mm -hmm. don't assume that even your middle schooler is studying effectively. They may need some guidance and some help to do that. Right, right. Well, and that's one area through my working with children in the classrooms, but also even in tutoring, the study skills aspect was pretty consistent across the board, middle school to high school. Um, because as you said, it's not something that's just an automatic yeah. thing that we know how to do if we're trying to gather information that has been presented to us, especially you know for a semester or even a quarter, and then trying to pull all of that stuff together. It does require a back and forth, a conversation, the more that they can re-summarize uh, information or restate it in their own words, the more they seem to understand it. If they can explain it to somebody else, then they definitely understand the concepts a little deeper. And then again, it, it boils down to what exactly type of information are you trying to put into your memory bank? Um, mm -hmm. And then the other piece of it, particularly for parents, but also educators, when we think about information and how it becomes part of our memory, I know I have seen that if it's relevant to the child's life, especially in the moment or right now, or maybe even something they're interested in naturally, the ability to remember is so much more significant. Absolutely. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Do you think that that is a part of the memory story? Is that if you, know, if you have that uh, innate interest already, then your ability to soak up that information is, is, is going to be higher. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. And one part of that is helping the, the students see that because they can be so successful in hanging on to a lot of facts about their favorite music groups or sports teams or whatever is this child's passion, that they really are a good learner and can pick mm -hmm. up some things quite easily. So that orientation can be can be really important just to see that in one context they have skills, how do they take that into another context? Uh, sometimes uh, 
the issues for children in memory and, and even older students in remembering information that they want to hang on to uh, is that they don't, they don't encode it. So I think it's important in this context to think about encoding and storage and retrieval, that all of those processes are, are very important and they're separate. Things can go wrong or right at any of those stages of information processing. Uh, so sometimes we don't remember things because we just weren't paying attention and just don't take them into our memory. I think all of us uh, as adults have had the experience of not remembering someone's name yes. and being embarrassed later because we've seen this person several times and we don't have their names. And it isn't that we forgot it. It's that we didn't encode it. So taking in that information initially becomes really important. Uh, a next step in that is hanging on to that information over time. Uh, and if we uh, linked it, as I mentioned before, to other information in our head, it's more likely that we'll activate that, that memory. Uh, so that's another step that becomes really important. And then strategies for retrieval as a separate component. So in a memory failure or memory loss, thinking about at what point in that information processing, the loss of information may have occurred can be really helpful. Okay. Well, and you know, you saying strategies for retrieval, I will tell you <laughs> just recently, I was trying to retrieve some information and I was just getting so frustrated because it was like, I know this information and I know it's in there somewhere, but what I think might be happening, this is just a personal you know, story about uh, technology and the ability to get information at the click of a mouse and quick Google search. I'm wondering if we are entering a time where we're not taking the time to encode and link because we think to ourselves, mm -hmm. I can get that information whenever I want it. Um, yeah. So I do wonder, I'm just curious, you know, maybe that's another research uh, question that, that we, we should uh talk to somebody about looking into, I'm sure it's probably already been looked into, but I, I do, I wonder, because there've been times where I'll read something and I think, oh, this is very interesting. And I definitely want to be able to go back to this and I'll save it or I'll bookmark it, but I won't quite read it in the way that I have in the past. If I were to find like, maybe an article or read something in a magazine, because I know it's not going to be there later. So I, right. I, you know, I interact with it differently. Um, so I do, I'm wondering how to make that leap with our children because of the fact that they are in a time of immediate information. Yeah. Is there, have you seen some ways that we can be sure to support our children there? That is really, really so interesting. And I'm not sure I have an answer yet. The question of how technology and the availability of information is really changing mm -hmm. how we may go about gathering information in the world, I think is just so useful. It's so important. Um, I think it would be hard if we had to remember all the passwords that oh, most yeah. of us have. We use some sort of password manager or some other, other device, uh, but uh, we, it, we sometimes want to be more, proceed more quickly than we can by even logging on to something. But uh, I, I don't know, but I think that's a really important question mm -hmm. to study. The whole kind of field of uh, how we use information, how information is designed to facilitate our cognitive processes and compensate for our limitations, I think is a really growing field. Yeah. Um, in our department at State, uh, we have a human engineering or human factor psychology uh, that really addresses questions like that. 
And um, there's, I think, an increasing and very important body of work that's looking at that. But the question is really how people use technology, how technology should be designed to support human learners. Uh, and um, a lot of our students are interested, for example, in the design of video games and smart games uh, that would um, most be most suited to the kinds of um, information skills that maybe a person with a particular disability might have. And then the question of how using technology may change our own ability to retain information over time or to take in information. So that question that you were asking, I think is, is a really interesting one, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't know the answer. You know, go ahead and do that research and let me know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so right after this, we lost a little bit of our recording and we are picking back up where we left off. You were mentioning uh, about a cousin. You said a cousin who... Oh, right. I was just following yeah. up on one of the things that you had said. And a, a cousin of mine who's a minister actually had training in seminary and learning to remember people's names. Uh, and he's very good. So, and what a connection that makes, huh? I mean, that's oh, so- Oh my gosh, yes. It's so important. And I've had to really try to teach myself that it may be, I may not remember a name because I didn't take it in in the first place. And if it's the first or even second time you met that person, you can say, well, I didn't catch your name. Let me make sure I've got it. Mm -hmm. It's hard if you let it drift on and it's the fifth time you've met them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's a limited time correction there. So I think that's uh, something to think about if it's a name or some other piece of information that's going to be really useful to really uh, take advantage of that limited time when you can mm -hmm. make sure you have it. Um, yeah, we were talking. Well, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that speaks to the reality we all suffer to some degree with our ability to remember things. Absolutely. And it's okay to just say, I was not able to retain that information the first go around, but I'm going to try again. Um, I think it and, can be really affirming. I mean, mm -hmm. I really wanted to get your name and I don't have it. Please help me know again. And then when that person is telling it to try to come up with some sort of association. So, um, ah, this is Melissa. This is Melissa who has the same name as my daughter-in-law, you know, so mm -hmm. that, that can be really useful to come up with that that kind of connection. Uh, if we yeah. Can make. Mm -hmm. And I do think the being conscious of your desire to remember information helps tremendously, not just with factual information, but also your own personal memory of your life. And that's yeah, one yeah. area that I remember early on reading um, Dr. Rick Hansen. He's very um, huh. involved in like the sort of the mental mindset of peace and recognizing the good in your life and counting your wins. And uh -huh. that's something that's been really important for me as a parent with my children is to help them remember the good in life because we are primed naturally to remember the negative experiences. Because mm -hmm. if you really look at it from an evolutionary perspective, that's because it was for survival reasons. We had to mm -hmm. remember the negative because you don't go into that side of the woods because that's where you might be attacked by a wild animal. So you right. stay away from not there. And you're going to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You do that one time and you're probably not going to be here for, for long. Um, and so to help them understand why maybe a negative event will be so much bigger to them 
and how important it is for them to remember to not elevate that one to the front all the time, but also recognize that there were so many beautiful, amazing things that happened as well. And I, I, I think that ties into the research that you've done with children and and um, when they've had traumatic events, whether they've been injured and then they've been interviewed by their doctor, um, and how those events can become uh, very strong. And so, what have you found in the research for children's memory, and how that links to the testimony aspect of yeah. them recalling something that happened that that might have been traumatic or scary? That's been a really satisfying. Um kind of work for um, myself and my colleagues, I think, because we have learned a lot. And as part of a community of lots of people doing lots of work, uh, have been able to make some changes in how children are managed in the court systems that I think is is very important and gratifying. So uh, let me just back up a little and tell you how we've done that. And there's an important qualification here in that um, the work that my colleagues, Dr. Peter Ornstein, the late Dr. Betty Gordon, and I have been involved in wasn't really with children who had been victims of um, abuse or the other kinds of experiences that children might testify about in court. And of course, the reason for that is that in a situation where the legal actions are pending, we don't really know what happened. So we've wanted to look at how accurate children's memory can be and how accurate it can be under different kinds of circumstances uh, and uh, different kinds of interviewing techniques. Um, And I think that's an area where the field has collectively um, made some real important progress. So as we've looked at previously and talked about some work, we can see that their young children can retain uh, information over long periods of time but it's often from their own perspective. So uh, just, and and some of the common sense factors that would apply to adult memory don't apply to children's memory. So if an adult is talking about witnessing an automobile accident, the first time they talk to a law enforcement officer, they don't mention the fact that the car was a Tesla. And the second time they, oh, by the way, it was a Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um that wouldn't be very credible, I think, because that would be such a salient detail to most adults. Uh, to children, the fact that they may come up with information later over time is a developmental change, and that may really happen. But uh, I'm digressing a little bit. I want to say that we've looked at children's memory for a, va- a variety of medical experiences with cooperations from uh, physicians ranging from um, people who did plastic surgery in the ER to uh, pediatricians who were involved with kids in well-child checkups. And the reason for that work is that we wanted to know what happened to be able to specify exactly what had occurred, uh, but also um, to be able to work with large numbers of children uh, so that we could identify some age-related changes and some differences that might occur under different modes of questioning. Uh, so uh, our initial work uh, looked at um, children of different ages and how they could how much they could tell us months later about a pediatric exam they may have heard, uh, have had, that involved contact with the child's body, some degree of discomfort, at least around certain features like a shot or a finger prick for most kids. And uh, we could really look at age-related differences and the kinds of questioning that they were needed. 
Um, and some, I'm sure that uh, a lot of the findings aren't particularly surprising for people who work with kids, but it was important to, to document them. So when children are asked, drawing from a lot of work in our lab and in other labs, when children are uh, asked questions in a straightforward way uh, so that there's no attempt to mislead or shape the child's memory, um, kids are really pretty good at providing information that's accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't get a lot of um, creating memories when they're interviewed uh, in a supportive way, when they're told that um, the interviewer wants to know what happened from the child's perspective, that they weren't there, uh, when the interviewer uh, doesn't go to misleading questions quickly, but tries to stay with uh, more open-ended or more general questions uh, so that we're not shaping the child's memory or putting memories in the, in, the child's, in the child's head. So even children at three could come up with a few useful pieces of information, but they were really limited in how much information they could provide. By about age seven, kids are really good. Now, remember, this was a familiar event, and uh, they were interviewed by someone who was doing their best attempts to support the child's memory and not to ask questions that could result in uh, leading the child's memory in a certain way. So in that particular situation, that was the case. It became intriguing at that point to think about uh, the limitations that most children have in their verbal abilities early in childhood and what would happen if you could circumvent the child's need to provide their, um, use language to provide their information. So um, there's been a lot of work, some in our own lab and many other labs, looking at use of uh, dolls or um, representations of the child's body, like giant drawings, uh, or in one study my colleague Andrea Greenhut did, uh, and it, uh, given the child the opportunity to reenact a medical checkup. Um, and um, the, the problem doesn't seem to be just the language limitations. Uh, children who are given dolls or who are given the chance to act out an event provide more information, but they also provide more wrong information. Uh, those anatomically detailed dolls don't look like most dolls, and children are sometimes um, uh, are starting off talking about what they may have experienced, and then they notice these unusual components, or they get lost in play. Uh, so at about five, children benefit a bit from dolls, but by that time, they don't really need, in most cases, the verbal support. Um, okay. So, so that's not the answer. And of course... Um, if there's the issue of what's credible information and if there's too much prompting available or too much, too many cues available, the information no longer becomes uh, really solid or really good evidence. So that wasn't the answer. And now uh, dolls typically aren't used uh, in legal settings unless nothing else is working, but it's done with the understanding that evidence provided through or reports provided through the use of a lot of dolls and prompts um, may not be, may be subject to being really torn down in court. Um, mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of, uh, so that's some things we learned basically. Um, the number of details that happens comes from children's, um, <clears throat> as they, their verbal skills increase and they get older, there's a lot more detail. Um, and um, children's ability to say that something didn't happen, if it's asked in a direct way, uh, is really pretty good. Um, now, pretty good is a relative term. Uh, I think a lot of researchers, including my work, we were interested 
in better than chance. And of course, mm-hmm. in a legal setting, the criteria becomes different that one wrong piece of information may result in an injustice for someone. So um, yeah. the, the standards of proof become different in different settings, I think. But um, interviewers who are uh, really being patient, letting the child tell their own story, uh, doing a good job to set up some good rapport with the child initially to make sure the child knows what they're doing and the rules of what they're doing uh, can be really uh, effective in generating some a lot of information. Some of the problems okay. are just the time delays that can go on, the numbers of interviews that can go on, uh, children's concerns about having done something wrong, feeling shame or getting in trouble. Um, and of course, a supportive interviewer can help with that. Um, yeah. You were, I think your point too about the narrative is that for some children, this is work by uh, Dr. Gail Goodman at, at California Davis, uh, is that some children find a great deal of benefit from participating in the legal setting, uh, that sort of a understanding that they're helping, that they didn't do anything wrong, uh, that being a victim is not who they are. It's a bad thing that happened to them. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so that construction of self, the experiences that we have around that can be, can be really important there. Uh, we've looked at children's memory for emergency medical treatment uh, out to a year uh, with my colleague, um, Carol Peterson. We've gone even further than that. And um, there certainly, it certainly is the case that children from about age five-ish can hold on to information and provide useful information. It can be complicated in that children may not understand um, what they're seeing. And we have to be skilled at getting inside the child's head without putting things inside the child's head. Mm, Um, Let me give you my favorite example. This was a little boy, an adorable little boy who was three at the time. And he was telling us what happened when he got his physical examination, a regular child checkup. Um, so it was not a particularly stressful event or unusual event or frightening event, but he, um, he could t- sort of was doing something three-year-olds often do, which was giving us one thing at a time. So if we just stop, tell me everything you remember, one thing, then mm-hmm. we, then tell me some more. But the thing that he said that was so interesting in terms of understanding things from the child's point of view is that he said, uh, the nurse put blood in his finger. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's just his his limited understanding at the time, right? About exactly. how his body works, and then yeah, and that's well, what, the, what the nurse was doing. That was what he saw, you know, and mm-hmm. he was he was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things that may be um, cultural differences or uh, dialect differences. We had a child once who responded to a question that was there as sort of a a question to see if the child was just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a question about, did the nurse lick your knee? Now that's a very, <laughs> the very strange question. We actually put it in because our federal funding agency wanted uh, that question there. So we asked okay. it. And the, the goal was to have something that was sort of bizarre um, mm-hmm. so that we could see how the children responded. Were they just in a response bias mode? And um, when the child was asked, did the nurse lick your knee? Almost all the children, regardless of age, were really good at saying, what? No. But this child said, yes. And it turned out when the interviewer did a really nice job of tell me some more about that, um, the child was um, thinking about the, the, the 
it was a physician, but checking the child's reflexes with a reflex hammer. Mm. So in this child's community, lick meant uh, like you get a link with a, pa- a, a a lick with a paddle. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah. so did did the nurse lick the child's knee? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, oh my gosh! See, and that's such an important piece to bring forward because yeah. It, it speaks to the need for us to really put the brakes on when we start making assumptions or drawing right. conclusions about what our children say, see, and experience. Yeah. And that, you know, we also have our own bias, right? When we come into a situation exactly with, especially like if our children are arguing, there's mm-hmm. a history there. And if we have mm-hmm. a history that says so-and-so tends to um, start a situation, then we might immediately assume that that's the same thing that's going on again in this situation. So it's important to just remember to take a, take a break, take a breath and, and just sort of gather information as you can. But Mm -hmm. so would you suggest in a situation like that, for instance, because I think a lot of people would be able to relate to that. Is it best to ask those open-ended questions to our kids? it's, It's not a mistake to ask for more information or, um, maybe preface it. Sometimes things look different to different people. How did it look to you? you yes. Know, okay. How did it look to you? So we're not at that point taking sides or taking action, except we're trying to understand a little more about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding intentional and versus accidental behavior is really hard for little kids. Um, oh, for sure. And yeah. So uh, I remember one point when my my two sons were were young, uh, quite young. One of them understood something about um, intentional behavior and refused to apologize for anything that happened accidentally. So if he bumped into his brother, he would not say "I'm sorry" because he did not intend to hurt his brother. Mm-hmm. Right? He had nothing to apologize <laughs> for. But the little child, the younger child, who was at a more sort of concrete level of understanding and didn't really. Uh, and understood intention only kind of by the consequences, that if you didn't say, I'm sorry, it meant that you meant to hurt him. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they mm-hmm. were they were really at each other. And um, I, I finally realized I could sort of meet them where they were and just say, uh, you know, uh, just just it's OK just to tell your brother that uh, he's sorry that his brother's foot hurts, you know, yeah. like. You don't have to accept the responsibility to acknowledge that it's unfortunate that the child is experiencing minor pain. So mm-hmm. it's just that need for the other child to say, I've been seen. That's right. And my feelings matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. that to say, I've been seen, my feelings matter, in this case, was a way of saying that uh, I did not intend to hurt you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so that, that understanding of the event, I think, can become. Uh, can become really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah. So with uh, with the research um, for memory and testimony, w- would you say that um, that you, there's a pretty noticeable difference, like you were saying, between age three to age seven? Absolutely. Can you, can you give Absolutely. an example of some good questions to ask the different age ranges? So if you're trying to um, gather information, and it doesn't have to be an, a necessarily a traumatic event, but just in general, right. if you're trying to get information from a child, like how would you say the a line of questioning would look different for a three-year-old versus maybe a seven-year-old yeah. or somewhere in between? I think the amount of scaffolding and structuring 
that the child needs in the interview gets less and less with age. So um, the child who goes to school, say that six-year-old, that seven-year-old, is really accustomed to adults asking them questions when adults know the answer, right? Mm -hmm. A three- and four-year-old may not be accustomed to providing information that the adult doesn't know. Uh, adults know everything. We are powerful and smart and brilliant, right? So <laughs> never make and never make mistakes. We sure uh, like to think that, right? <laughs> only they can hold on to that through the teenage years, right? But um, it may be really important to begin the interview differently by uh, interview and informal conversation. Here is the same is the same thing, but to remind the child that you know I wasn't there, I didn't see it, I don't know what happened. You know, I want you to help me know what happened. Uh, and that's that certainly wouldn't be the same level of need for the for the seven year old. Um, I think starting off with general questions to avoid possibly misleading the child, uh, sometimes giving the child some guidance in let's think about the first things that happened, then mm -hmm. the next things. So walking them through kind of a chronology, um, asking questions for which there's more than one answer even um, if you have to go to some more specific questions. So starting off with, let's talk about everything that happened from the time you left the school bus to the time you came home on the school bus. You know, maybe one, one set of things. Um, and um, the, the younger child may need more WH questions. So we're, not, we're still not really leading the child, but we're focusing their attention on certain aspects of the event. So okay. you know, who was in the room? Who else was in the room? Did anyone else come and go? Uh, where were you? Um, so the child is getting more structure in guiding their questions, but uh, we're not directing the questions to them. Um, so it's like you're kind of bookending the questions yeah. between two pieces of information that you know is factually accurate. So the beginning, yeah. getting on a bus to getting off the bus. Mm -hmm. So in in a home situation, it could be from the time you came inside until the time you went outside, um, you know, in a small time frame. So it's nice right. to have something that gives them um, that platform, I guess, right. to, to interact in between those two time points. And just enough guidance to help them tell this story in their own words, which may be more in earlier ages than, than later, of course. So uh, who was there? What was that person doing? Uh, that kind of thing can may be necessary to get to get into as well. Um, children of younger ages um, tend not to include a lot of emotions in their reports. Hmm. Uh, a seven-year-old uh, could be so, uh, or typically does. So it may be really helpful as part of if you need to prompt the child to provide the child with some uh, questions. And again, looking for the child's own words as the answer. But um, what what were you feeling? And a lot of kids may say not sick or well, but uh, mm -hmm. to try to try to find a little bit about the emotion. Uh, and again, not assuming that uh, any particular emotion is linked to lots of things that may or may not have happened. Um, one one study we did a long time ago that was a lot of fun by my one of my first graduate students, Dorothy Flanagan, who is wonderful. But anyway. Um, the, um, we were interested in the classic, what did you do in school today? Oh, nothing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wonderful cooperative parents to whom we loaned some um, recording devices and asked them to find out from their child what happened at school. 
and it was really it was really fun and really interesting. And what we found was that in general, not surprising to any parents, what happened in school? Oh, nothing, you know, mm-hmm. but parents who could use their knowledge of what typically happened in a school day, focus their child's attention on certain experiences, got a lot of information from the child. So okay. tell me what happened at circle time. Tell me who you sat next to at lunch. Um, guiding, using what they knew to narrow down and focus the child's attention on certain components of the events could be really useful. And these were um, four-year-olds, so for younger okay. children. So using what you know can really be helpful. Um, you know, I knew you were having an algebra test today. How did that go? Did you study the right things? You know, so mm-hmm. uh, using what you know to guide the child's report can be uh, can be really helpful. And that's a thing that we're seeing now is in knowledge is so important, not just the child's knowledge of the material, which is very helpful and can sometimes compensate largely for age-related differences, but also the parent's knowledge of the event that they want the child to talk about. And of course, we're talking about everyday interactions here where providing a question that might tilt the child's response one way or the other has many fewer consequences than in a situation that may involve actionable legal uh, Yes, So absolutely. I distinction. If the child mischaracterizes what was on the algebra test, it's okay. You've had a nice interaction about their school day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and just thinking about the general conversations that we would have with our children day to day, I was thinking about specific conversations I've had with my kids over the years. And I have noticed that when I model, like you had mentioned earlier, modeling to help um, show our children how we remember things or how we're going to remember things, I find that to be the case with um, helping remember specific events. So if we went on a a vacation somewhere, Mm -hmm. I will speak about it. Like I remember going to this part, this, this park or this restaurant, that was my favorite place to eat. So it's almost like in in the in the conscious parenting circles, we call it sportcasting, where uh-huh. you sportcast uh-huh. your fear, feelings and experience for a particular situation. And so, uh-huh. I think that that's an important piece to remember when we're discussing trying to help our memories become stronger Absolutely. and counting our wins. So it's like the, you know, I liked going to this restaurant. I like this part of the beach. I I love that particular day because we did this, this, and this. And then our mm-hmm. kids will listen and, and then they will interject. Oh yeah. You know, I remember here and then they start adding to their memory bank as well. So I know you mentioned um, mm-hmm. when we spoke earlier about one of your graduate students doing work on children's memories for a, a long-term memories. Is that correct? Am I? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And is it mainly, was her question because she wanted to see how she can help parents help their children maintain memories of people who may not no longer be around? Is that? Right. That's some work okay. that we're just beginning that I think is is going to be very important work, but it builds on an earlier study. Uh, these were children in Canada. My, my colleague, Carol Peterson, is in Newfoundland. Um, and had a lot of data on children who had had emergency medical treatment. These were minor emergencies. They need sutures, sometimes a cast, but it was things that from the standpoint of the physician, the child comes in, it's pretty stressful, but it's uh, just an ordinary thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> big, big news in the family. But um, the, um, the, the question we were really interested in is if we look two years later, when children were re-interviewed again, 
what predicted whether specific pieces of information were retained or were not retained. So we could look at particular components of that event, um, the medical treatment that was done, the medication that may have been uh, administered, instructions for their care later, whatever, um, and could really focus on aspects of the child's report at one time and point, one time and point uh, in, the, in the event that predicted their retention of that particular component later. Uh, and some things I think were not really surprising. Uh, if the child um, had, was more likely to have emotion accompanying that particular feature, they were more likely to hang on to that particular component, much less mm. likely to, uh, to forget it. Uh, reminders of the event, having pictures of the event, not many pictures of this kind of event, but uh, that mattered less than we would have thought in terms of children. Okay. Yeah. And it may be that we make pictures, we put them in books or we put them on shelves and we don't look at them or talk about them. Uh, mm -hmm. So that, that may have been part of it. One particular thing that was really important is that if children had more coherent narratives, uh, and those are just the things we've been talking about, about they provide a context for the memory, uh, things are presented in a, a sequential kind of order, um, they were more likely to hang on to those particular components. So we're, we're real interested um, in uh, a child who may have lost a loved one and how those memories of that loved one can be can be held on to. And I, I think our work with testimony in many ways informs that, but again, it's a little different situation. And if the child uh, is hanging on to a memory that may be consistent with their view of their relationship with that parent, but may not be exactly what happened, we're less concerned about that. You know, right. the, the question of a misleading information, if it's um, not an attempt to change the child's information, but maybe a detail that came from the parent rather than from the child's own memory. Um, that's that's not um, a damaging thing, perhaps, in that situation compared to another. Um, mm -hmm. So how is it that we hang on to uh, special memories over time, over long periods of time? Uh, and if you want to help your child hang on to memories, exactly the kinds of conversation that conscientious, con conscious parenting uh, involves are what we're talking about here, too. Uh, so we're giving them kind of a structure of the event. We're incorporating different people's views. Uh, we're uh, including some emotional kinds of things. This was my favorite. We were disappointed when it rained, but we had so much fun going to that inside exhibit, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, that, that those are, are really good techniques for holding on to some of our precious times together. But also um, the... Uh, the child's um, ability to take some of that information and form their own identity over time by the ways that parents are helping them kind of understand themselves. You know, mm -hmm. um, if it's, you were so afraid to jump off the diving board, you've always been afraid of new things. That's a very different message than remember that you, you were first afraid to jump off the diving board, but then later we laughed because you had so much fun and didn't want to stop. Mm -hmm. um, so those are different messages about who the child is. They both may be true. Um, but on the one hand, we don't want to shape our child's perceptions of themselves, but we do want to give them the adult's understanding of what a situation may be like. 
So it's not that you were always afraid of everything. It was that sometimes it takes you a while to realize that you like something, you know? So I think that's part of the long process of really shaping our identity and who we are. Um, I guess sociologists long ago talked about a looking glass self and the way that we experience events with our children and reflect our thoughts to them about what the, the story means to them and to their uh, understanding of themselves is very much a part of that looking glass self, how we see the child reflected and how we see ourselves reflected in others. Mm-hmm. Well, as we were talking, I, th- I was thinking about the photograph part that you said, mm-hmm. if, if somebody saw a photograph, it didn't necessarily um, create or, or uh, help them with their memory uh, about a particular event. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if a, a wonderful way to support children's memories from their childhood up through, you know, the time they leave, I guess, um, is when you're well, making a picture book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you're creating a picture book or a photo book for your children, it would make sense to add some text and yeah. context. So instead yeah. of just photos, maybe write a little explanation about what was going on in that photograph, where you were, dates, specific events that happened. Um, and I would imagine even including the children in creating that story. I think that could be wonderful if parents yeah. are, both, are both enjoying that. That could be mm-hmm. a really lovely, lovely thing. Right. Um, so almost like a little story of your lives in pictures, but then you get to add that context. And also yeah. it helps solidify their memories and their recall of that particular event as well. I used to um, do an interview, a videotaped interview with or video recorded interview with my kids on their birthdays. Oh, and we would talk about the past year and what they'd learned and what just things like that. And I remember their answers were often so different than what I would have expected. How about Um, that? Yeah. The, um, I remember one child, one time, my, my son, I think it was his fourth birthday and I asked him what he had learned this year. And he said, the most important thing he had learned was talking on answering machines. He learned how to leave a message on an answering machine. And he was so proud of that. Yeah. And of, of all the things we'd done and learned that year, that wouldn't have just come up in my head. Mm-mm. But uh, again, it was a lovely sort of sense of I'm learning new things. I'm becoming competent in the world, you know, and, and this is one example of that. So that yeah. was, that was a really, a really special thing. Absolutely. Um, well, oh my gosh, that just gave me chills when you said that you did that every year with your kids because well, oh. it, it gave it up too soon. I wish there was a point when, oh no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't last on every birthday, but it was, it was just so much fun. And the kids mm-hmm. really enjoyed being interviewed. Maybe it's because I, they know I interview people for my work, but yeah. um, they, they were, they took it very seriously when they were younger. Um, right. So how, how long did you get to do it for? Seven or so after, okay. after that, it was more fun to do other things. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But you were able to capture them for those yeah. early years. I'm sure yeah. they are, if they don't appreciate it now, I'm sure they will definitely oh, they appreciate do. it later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, That's amazing. Um, the, oh, I love that. Own perspective of themselves and their, and their years. It, it can be mm-hmm. really, really wonderful. So we've talked a lot about memory as a tool for doing other things like succeeding in school and retaining information for uh, sharing information with other people in a way that can have real consequences in the world, especially when there may have been a traumatic situation or may not have been, but that's the question. Uh, and we've also talked about memory as this tool for forming our sense of who we are, 
which affects mm -hmm. what we do and what risk we're willing to take and what we aren't. So uh, it covers a lot of a lot of ground, and I, I couldn't have imagined a more important thing to study all these years. I love it. So important, and and especially in relation to not just raising your children, but then the aspect of education and how we, I think, unfortunately in school, we sometimes separate the personal experience from the factual knowledge. And yeah. I really try to encourage people to look at the child as a full experience that has mm -hmm. a feeling world, an emotional world, and also this ability to seek out knowledge and to learn and to, to build on their practical skills. Um, and so when it comes to memory, I think it's very beneficial for anyone working with children to look at that big picture of not just what they're learning, but how they're learning it, why they're right. learning it, and what that emotional experience is for that particular child with that information. Absolutely. And, I think it would help a lot of people um, probably get, not necessarily, well, I would say it would help a lot of people become more um, impactful in interacting with kids if they mm -hmm. remember the, the emotional side, because that's, that's where our memories live, right? Would you say that they're, you know, that, that we've seen that the emotions of an event or a situation or an interaction with a person how it affects the nervous system does lead to more stronger memories? I would certainly say that was the case for autobiographical memories, our memories of our own experiences, the events we've experienced, what we've made happen in the world, and so on. Um, and I think maybe other parts of the brain might represent some other kinds of memories that we've talked about, like how it is that we rehearse information, what we do to retain mm -hmm. this information. So, uh, but, but absolutely for what I would consider the, the kind of memory that's the core of ourselves, it's uh, hugely emotionally determined. And uh, it's so easy as an adult to forget how even our understanding of emotion varies so much by age, certainly also by culture and mm -hmm. community. So um, it's, it's encompassing a lot of different facets of our lives. And it's never dull. No, it's not. <laughs> I agree. No, I agree. I want to later. I had this experience recently. My mother was a very dedicated uh, public health nurse. And I hadn't thought about this, you know, since I was a child long ago. But um, there had been a, a flu epidemic. And uh, there was a small college in the town where we lived. And she, I remember her bringing me home a drawing that one of the patients in the infirmary that she had helped take care of during this community um, emergency had sent home to me. And um, because I guess they talked about her little daughter uh, and mm. I remember my mother putting it in the oven and I had a vivid memory of that. And I hadn't thought about that since I was a child until we came into this pandemic. And then I remembered that and remembered that she, and could figure out as an adult, she must have put it in that oven because she was concerned about killing James <gasps> oh, and, yeah. and then later I found that picture Aww. in a box of, of old papers from my childhood. So 
we we often have memories that we may not even be thinking about that may be cued later by other things. Yes. Yeah. yes. And we will see it and go, wow, that's been yeah. a consistent thought through a, for a long time. And maybe it's this is kind of where it was created. Yeah. 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 And could I prove that that's what's actually happened? No. Mm-mm. But I know that, that uh, when I was the age, about the age in question year or so, there had been a flu epidemic. I do mm-hmm. know that my mother was assigned to be in this college for a while uh, to help. And uh, I do know that there was a picture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of evidence that suggests it was a pretty accurate memory. So we, we hang on to a lot of memories that may be important in helping us understand events way down the road. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. And um, I was thinking about the salient memories um, for children and I was attacked by a dog at age five mm-hmm. and had to go to the hospital and get stitches in my chin. Um, and I feel as if I can remember it like it happened yesterday because yeah. it was just so sudden and it was so um, dramatic and it would be fascinating to go back and see the, the procedural pieces mm-hmm. from the doctor's perspective. But, you know, I could even remember the doctor's um, interaction with me and how they were saying, okay, this is going to hurt a little bit, mm-hmm. but, but you're going to be okay. You know, and I, I remember looking in their face and seeing their eyes and they were genuine, but at the same time I was about to be hurt. <laughs> uh-huh. And as a child you're thinking, but ah, it's just that mixture of when you're that age, you don't think, um, logically, I guess, in terms of like the physical part, what you, and you know, you have to be stitched up. Yeah. You're just thinking about it specifically from a, my, it hurts. And I want you to make that stop, <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. but it's a strong but memory. It's still there. So. A lot of that experience is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Lynn, though, so much for having this conversation with me. Such a pleasure. I've enjoyed this conversation so much and I appreciate the opportunity to put it in the context of parenting. So thank you for um, encouraging me to, to explore some uh, implications today. Is there any, any parting words, anything you would like to leave parents or educators with as far as children's memory goes? I think we've covered so many important things today. I, I, um, I hope they'll enjoy seeing the world from their children's perspective. Yes. And and uh, be conscious in thinking about their role in helping their children shape their understanding of themselves and their world, uh, which can be done without altering the child's own memory. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to information we discussed in the show notes, including where to find Dr. Baker Ward. And if you are looking to transition to homeschool or are considering unschooling but have questions, please reach out. I will continue to schedule sessions over the summer, which is a great time to evaluate where your children are, where they have been, and where they wish to go on this learning journey that we call life. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.